RCR with Paul Brennan, Reality Check Radio. It's Monday morning, so as I mentioned, our health hacks with Dr. Glenn Davies of ReversalNZ.co.nz has moved to Monday, and here we are on Monday. It's a great way to start the week, actually. And Glenn, good to talk with you again. I hope you had a good weekend. Fantastic weekend, and um, nice to see you again, Paul. Yeah, that last chat that we had about cancer, that was really interesting, I'd have to say. Really interesting. And uh, I, I thought that there was some great information in there. I've been thinking about that, actually. And, well, thank uh, you, Paul, for sharing um, your personal experience. Uh, appreciated that. Oh, well, I'm glad I could help. Hopefully it helped. Not something I would have chosen to go through, but, you know, that's life, right? So and all those primitive cells in there, had to had to deal to them, take them yeah. out. All right. I think we touched on kind of what we're about to talk about now um, as one of the points in the chat about cancer a week and a half ago, and that was, what, ketogenic diet? That's uh, right. Yeah. So we're here to talk about that today. Now, I've heard a bit about this. You know, people talk about the ketogenic diet. What, what does, what does the, the word mean? So keto is the slang. Ketogenic diet is, is sort of the, the full term. And it is a medical nutrition therapy or a, a diet that can be used as a therapeutic intervention in a variety of health conditions. Uh, and I got interested in this um, because of my interest in type 2 diabetes. But as I've spent more time in this realm, I've realized that it has applications for many more conditions than just type 2 diabetes. So, you know, it, it has application for neurological conditions like epilepsy. And interestingly, that's where the ketogenic diet was first used in the 1920s for children with intractable epilepsy. So, you know, it goes back, yeah, that's more than 100 years, isn't it? So 1920s for epilepsy, it's been proven to have effect in Parkinson's disease and Alzheimer's. It has a role in cancer treatment, uh, obviously effective treatment for type 2 diabetes. And it's probably the most searched term uh, in terms of diet interventions for weight loss. So I um, have you been playing with chat GPT at all? No, I've resisted so far because I think AI could be evil. <laughs> no, <laughs> I, I, I haven't, but I've heard a lot about it. Okay, well, I, I put it into chat GPT and um, the ketogenic diet was the most searched diet on the internet, uh, followed by the Mediterranean, paleo, intermittent fasting and vegan. So, you know, it's, it's certainly out there, but I think there's a lot of misunderstanding about what it is. So that's why I wanted to talk about the keto diet today. Great. Do you need to do a disclaimer about diet? Yeah, well, as, as we always do every Monday morning, um, you know, we're here to expand people's knowledge and to improve their self-efficacy and ability to self-manage, but not to give individual medical advice. That is still the domain of your relationship with your healthcare provider. Of course. You know, I was thinking when you said that this, this um, diet had what invented is probably not the word, but someone worked out 
a treatment for the epilepsy, I think you said intractable in kids, in the 1920s. Last week, you talked about how someone figured out that cancer cells devoured sugar, basically, and that was in the 1930s. Boy, people were really onto it back in the day, weren't they? Uh, uh, the the well, discoveries and the awarenesses, yeah. you know, 100 years ago? Wow. So what's really interesting about that epilepsy story is I think that was before there were medications to treat epilepsy. So, you know, I think this was invented or noticed because, you know, there were no treatments and, and it worked effectively well. Then the medications came along and obviously the medications were much easier, particularly in children. And this concept got sort of forgotten about, but it's making a resurgence uh, just because we're now interested in a whole lot of different options other than just medication. I guess it comes down to necessity being the mother of invention, as I always. So. Yeah, yes, indeed. Mm. I haven't said that for a, for a long time. I haven't had the opportunity to say that line for a long time. Okay, where do we start? Um, what is the diet? Describe the diet. Okay, so a ketogenic diet is any different is any nutrition plan that produces ketones. So largely how this is done is it's a low carbohydrate, moderate protein, and higher healthy fat diet. So go through that again. The protein stays pretty much the same. So you eat a normal amount of meat, fish, chicken, chickpeas, tofu, you know, your, your normal proteins, that stays the same. The carbohydrates are dramatically lowered. So your sugar, flour, bread, rice, potatoes, that is dramatically lowered and lowered to the point where we're trying to get at less than 20 grams of carbohydrates per day. So for reference, one piece of bread is 15 grams, one five grams of carbs. So we're trying to lower our daily carbohydrates to around that level. So it's strict carbohydrate restriction. And because we've lowered the carbs, kept the protein the same, we have to increase the dietary fats. Otherwise, we'd be restricting total carbs. So that's generally how it's done. But you could be on a ketogenic diet using a whole food plant-based diet and fasting. You know, um, it's, it's really that combination of lowering the carbohydrates and using some fasting is usually what gets you into ketosis. Okay, ketones, it sounds musical to me. It's like a musical group from the 60s or something. <laughs> what are ketones exactly? Right. So ketones are these magical molecules, these incredible molecules that arise when there is no glucose around. So if you lower the blood glucose by lowering carbs, the body will produce ketones as an alternative fuel source uh, if you think particularly of the brain, it can use either glucose or ketones as a fuel source. If there's no glucose, it will make ketones. So ketones can cross the blood-brain barrier. They're small molecules. There's, there's three of them, acetone, acetate, and beta-hydroxybutyrate. Now, um, when you think of somebody who's uh, producing a lot of ketones early on, the smell is a little bit like aeroplane glue. 
Um, so that's the ketones in the area or the acetate or acetone in that. In the I, I've smelled. I, I've smelled someone like that before. Yeah. You know, uh, sort of like yeah, an acetate, acetate sort of or acetone smell. It's got a distinctive smell. I know that one. Yes, and those those are ketones. Now, interestingly, when you first go into ketosis, you produce a lot of acetone and acetate, which is wasted on the breath and in the urine. Ah. But over a period of time, as the body realizes how precious these ketones are, it stops wasting them. It stops making as much acetone and acetate, and it converts to making the beta-hydroxybutyrate, which is not wasted on the breath or in the urine. So I'm gonna, when I talk about testing a little bit later on, that, that fact will be quite relevant. But that um, acetone smell is a feature of about the first six weeks of ketosis. Right. Yeah, it's a very distinct... I wondered what it was at the time. I, I never knew, and now I know. All right, and isn't the body smart? It re well, it realizes there's a mechanism to say, "Hey, wait, wait on, wait on, we're wasting these." <laughs> yeah, yeah, it does, and they are precious molecules to the body because the brain always needs to be fueled, and if there's no glucose, it has to use ketones. So it's like a redundancy system as well. Yeah, it's a backup. So we've talked about our caveman friends before, but. But by the way, people people like the caveman friends. Okay, well, it's the cave. It's actually the caveman, cave woman, and, and cave children. Of um, course, yeah. And so it's likely that those our ancestors they didn't have a constant supply of food. There would have been really harsh periods, particularly during the winter, where there wasn't much food. Now it wouldn't have made sense if their brain stopped working if they didn't have access to their usual food source. So what they were able to do is access their stored fat and convert it into ketones to keep their brain working. So this is something that we have always had. Uh, and what we're doing is we're just utilizing it. So notice what I said, the ability to turn stored fat into ketones. So burning stored fat is losing weight. And that's why this has become the most popular weight loss diet, because you are turning stored fat into fuel and therefore you are losing weight. You know, so one kilogram of stored fat is 9,000 calories. If you convert that into ketones and burn it, then that's what a ketogenic diet does. And th that wouldn't take too long to burn, would it? Um, it's about three days worth of, of fuel is 9,000 calories. So if you fast for three days, you'd expect to burn around a kilogram of stored fat. Okay. That's a handy little equation to be aware of. Yeah. All right. So you've told us what ketones are and I think how the body makes ketones and why, and using the analogy of the, the nuclear cave man and woman family so and it, presumably that goes for most what mammals or animals as well that have the same mechanisms wouldn't they yeah well, i think bears do it when they hibernate ah okay yeah yeah otherwise they, yeah, yeah yeah they eat a lot of fruit and salmon in late summer to get fat and then they kind of go to sleep slow their metabolism and then they burn that stored fat to keep them alive during the winter yeah okay all right, so have we talked about what 
foods are carbs? I think you you kind of um, mentioned it at the start, but maybe you want to be more detailed about that. Yeah, so we're restricting carbohydrates. So there's no sugar, there's no flour, and there's nothing made with sugar and flour. So that gets rid of our cakes, biscuits, pastries, um, you can eat the center out of the pie, but you've got rid of the pastry <laughs> around the outside. You've got rid of your sandwiches, your filled rolls, you know, so you've got rid of your breakfast cereals. You've got rid of your porridge in the, in the morning. You got rid of your toast. Um, you're not putting milk in your, in your coffee. So it's a very significant change in, in diet, isn't it? For most for a lot of people, people for yeah. a lot of people, that's a big change. That's, that's, yeah. It's there every day, turned upside down, potentially. So most people then go, what the hell am I going to eat, Glenn? You know, and, and so that's a celery. very relevant question. And you can have celery. Yes, you can. Wonderful source of fibre. Um, so what might you eat for breakfast if you were having breakfast on a ketogenic diet? I would, my, my go-to would be poached eggs served on some wilted spinach uh, on some lightly fried mushrooms with some hollandaise sauce over the top. That, to me, would be a, a perfect breakfast. That sounds yummy, actually. Sounds good. You're, if you like more that sort of cereal concept, I would have um, some frozen berries um, defrosted uh, with some nuts, um, some Greek yogurt, uh, and, yeah, that, that would be a, another alternative breakfast. So... That might be what breakfast looks like. My go-to at lunchtime would be a chicken salad. So, you know, all of those above-ground vegetables, wonderful source of nutrients and vitamins, throw them in with some leftover chicken, and, you know, that's what a lunch might look like. Dinner would be not that much different to what you usually have. It'll be your meat, fish, chicken, your veggies, but you're leaving out the potatoes. Okay. Or if you've made a curry... You're going to serve that over cauliflower rice rather than over your normal rice. So initially it sounds quite challenging, but hopefully what I've just described there sounds reasonably normal. Well, to me, breakfast, the breakfast that you described isn't that much different, okay, um, from what people are used to. Um, probably the lunch snack is definitely high in carbs, eh? pies and, I don't know, um, Little rolls and things like that, and scones and cakes. So, and the dinner, apart from potatoes, pretty well as you're used to. So, actually, that's not much. If you break it down like that, not much shift in things, really. Well, actually, um, just when you're talking about lunch, wraps, wraps are something that really sort of uh, catch people out because they think because it's smaller and thinner, it's much lower in carbs. In fact, it's still a piece of bread. It's just hasn't got the air in it. So oh, okay. <laughs> I think I think a wrap is about the equivalent of three pieces of bread, which is forty-five grams of carbs. So, you know, um, wraps aren't the solution to a sandwich or a filled roll, unfortunately. Okay, that's good to point that out because that would have been my assumption, actually. Mm. So it's only um, bread with the air taken out of it. Really, Basically. yeah, yeah, okay. Yeah. Compressed bread, all yeah. right. Okay, so that's not too difficult, even though you might think it is. That didn't sound too difficult to make those changes to me. Um, so, how do you know then that you 
you need to do this, that you're in what, ketosis, is that the word? Yeah. So how do you know that you're in ketosis? So there's two ways of testing it. Initially, you know how I said that the acetone and acetate is wasted on the breath or in the urine? So there's a breath tester and there's a urine test. The commonest one are these um, sticks that you pee on and they'll change colour if you're producing ketones. But that will only work in the first six weeks. And people get caught out because they go, I'm going just as hard as I did at the beginning and I'm not producing the urinary ketones anymore. That's because they've converted to the beta hydroxy uh, right. rate, which you can only test in the blood. And there's a machine uh, that we recommend. It's called CareSense Jewel. It's like an ordinary diabetes finger prick machine, but it tests blood glucose and it'll test ketones. And that's what we recommend for people once they have got established into ketosis. Yeah, they say that anything above 0.5 millimoles per litre, you're in ketosis. So we recommend people get that. They're not too expensive, about $50 for the machine and the 10 test strips. So available from the chemist uh, and from other places. So that's CareSense Jewel. That's probably the best way of testing ketones. And then it's interesting, you would expect your ketones to be highest first thing in the morning because you've had your overnight fast, but that's not when they're highest because you've got this thing called the dawn phenomenon. Cortisol is produced in the morning to get us ready for the day, oh. and the cortisol stops the production of ketones. So probably the best time to test is sort of late afternoon. That's when you'll see the highest uh, ketone readings. Okay, well, that's handy as well. Another thing that's interesting um, you use them up when you exercise, which kind of makes sense. So if you test ketones after you've been exercising, they're likely to be lower than they were um, before you went, which is interesting as well. You'd expect it to be the other way around. So you need to have a, 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 a like a stable time period where it's away from starting the day, away from exercise. Like you say, sometime what in the, in the afternoon? Would be yeah, good. before before you've had dinner is a is probably yeah. the best time. Yeah. Okay, so where are we at now? Um, did I ask you how you know you've got it? Well, we've just talked about the testing. So, what are the benefits of ketosis? And I think we've touched on this in some of our earlier chats, but there might be more to add to that. So, yeah. So. I love people being in ketosis because I know that they are burning fat. The second thing I know is that their insulin levels are under control. You, you do not make ketones with high insulin. And high insulin is largely the cause of most metabolic dysfunction in the Western world. It's you know the cause of diabetes, often the cause of hypertension. It's the cause of fatty liver. It's the cause of that unwanted fat around the tummy. Uh, you know, a lot of these modern chronic conditions are due to insulin resistance. And if you are producing ketones, your insulin is under control. Okay, well, that's good to know. <laughs> that's why I like it. It's the perfect fuel for the brain. So I think anyone with a neurological condition should consider a ketogenic diet. You know, so if you've got Parkinson's disease, if you've got Alzheimer's, um, you know, some brain cancers, you know, epilepsy, possibly migraine, 
any of those neurological conditions, I'd be considering a ketogenic diet because the likelihood is that your brain, for some reason, is not using glucose correctly. So give it a different fuel source, ketones, uh, and you're likely to get a good result. You know, probably also multiple sclerosis, um, throw a ketogenic diet in and try it, see if things improve. Should you just, as a matter of course, be on this diet anyway, or is that going just a bit too far? What You end up what skinny as a rake. Yeah, no, that's, that's a fantastic question. And I think if, if you have a serious metabolic or neurological condition, yes, ketogenic diet. If you're just wanting to lose a couple of pounds, I think you don't have to be that severe. You can probably just use a low-carbohydrate diet. Can you, know, you, so, the, can you use like vary it to sort of dial in your required sort of weight range? Is there, is there yes. a way of manipulating it like that? You know, I love I love that it's a medical nutrition tool, a medical nutrition therapy, and I like this idea of using it for a short period of time and then easing off. Now, I don't want anyone to ease off back to cakes and biscuits and <laughs> yeah. and um, filled rolls, but you can use it for a period of time and then ease off a little bit. You know, that that concept I think is probably um, representative of what the caveman would have done. They would have had times of plenty, you know, and, and everything's about seasons, isn't it? You know, and I like this idea of maybe doing it for three months, achieving your, you know, your weight goal or your health goal, and then maybe introducing a few more carbs again, maybe up to 50 grams and doing, you know, a low-carb diet, but no one should be eating cakes and biscuits. Sugar is a poison. You know, everyone needs to be staying away from that, but could you add in the occasional apple? Um, yes, I think you can. You know, that, that's the point. Sugar should be banned by the sounds of things. Sugar is a poison, and would you just have a couple of cups of Roundup now and again? No. I hope not. Why would you have a couple of spoons of teaspoon, you know, spoons of sugar now and again? It is a poison. And and I think it needs to be viewed as a poison. And we could get into maybe debating whether the, there should be incentives like there are with tobacco prices on sugar price to try and stop people. Because I see, I mentioned this before on the program and other chats with people uh, relevant to um, dental hygiene. You know, you see people pile high with fizzy drinks going out in shopping trolleys, you know, gallons of the stuff or litres of the stuff. And yeah. and that can't be doing anyone any good. Well, we know it doesn't, right? And, and it's a complex um, philosophical discussion what you've just introduced there because, you know, do you tax or control people in that way? Um, I'm not sure about that, but certainly in my role, I can hope to educate and hopefully persuade people to make individual choices not, not to do that. The, the wider public health messaging and government responsibility, I think, is a little bit more complicated. Yeah, but, um, you know, taxpayers are paying for the health system. We're told it, it, it's endless, you know, black hole. Um, there's a lot of concern now. It's not just you or I that talk about it, plenty of people are saying, we don't think this health system is operating in the way it should. It's, a, it's like a disease system, not a health system. It's not, it doesn't actually have health as its goal. 
Um, if you're going to be fair to people and achieve something and call it what it is, you know, sometimes you got to make some tough decisions. You know, it's like people not drinking and driving um, on the roads because of the level of danger and the imposition of danger on others. Same thing, kind of. So I would now have no problem. I wouldn't say ban it, actually, you know, no, make it illegal or anything like that. But certainly um, in with public health messaging, go hard on it and make it make it pricey, disincentivize the purchasing of it. Yeah, that's that would be my compromise uh, in that philosophical debate is I would increase the price of these discretionary foods. And I, my trade-off uh, would be to lower the price on vegetables. You know, I would love yeah, to yeah. see above-ground vegetables affordable to everyone. Uh, and so if you put 100% markup on Moro bars and um, Nutrigrain, could we see a uh, 100% reduction in the price of fruit and vegetables? Well, in the price of the vegetables anyway, that, that would be what I'd love to see. Good compromise. Yeah, I think so. And also lowering the amount of sugar, you could have limits on that as well. Yeah, and that's difficult as well. Like, how does the food industry respond? Are they responding in a, a responsible way or are they just trying to push up the sugar to increase dopamine and sugar addiction to sell more product? Uh, I suspect they don't have health as their primary agenda. I think they have profit. So therefore, is there a place for some form of regulational control of the sugar content in foods, particularly cereals, particularly children's cereals? Yeah, because they are actually marketed as as healthy. Mm. You kind of get the impression that the healthy people think they're healthy because they're cereals and didn't you say that you were talking, I think, in one of our earlier chats, even just the regular um, breakfast cereals that the people sort of the go tos for decades are like just loaded up with sugar to the max? Yeah. Yeah. Um, and the marketing is deceptive. You know, Nutrigrain's the standout. Um, I'm not sure if I should be saying this, but we, we got ourselves into trouble, um, Professor Grant Schofield and I, because. Um, it was during Ironman week and we had a little bit of a dig at the main sponsor of Ironman, which is Nutrigrain, uh, suggesting that they could perhaps find a better sponsor because that's not really, you know, a sugar-filled cereal is not, basically not what Ironman are eating anyway, but not something that you should be associating with elite sport. You know, so uh, hopefully Ironman New Zealand can find a more appropriate sponsor. Uh, but we did get ourselves into a little bit of trouble and we weren't uh, invited back after no. those points. I can see why that would be. Even the name, Nutrigrain. Yeah. You know, anyway, we don't want to get hung up on, on all of that, but it's worth considering because, you know, you were talking a few weeks ago about a reimagined health system and it seems to me that there's really no room for these sorts of products in that. No, and I, I must say, um, I shouldn't pick solely on Nutrigrain. It's it's probably no worse or no better than any of these Fair other sugar filled cereals here. So yeah, it's a metaphor. It's a metaphor. Yes, it is. Yes, yeah. it is. All right. <laughs> I don't so, want to get into trouble again. <laughs> yeah. 
We'll get taken to the Broadcasting Standards Authority, even though they don't have jurisdiction over us. All right, so where are we up to? Oh, here, this is a good question. Will fasting do what you're talking about as well as the actual diet, the keto diet? Yeah, and a really important point because one of the objections that come up all the time is there is the cost issue because white bread and rice uh, and noodles are unfortunately all that some people can afford. Uh, and that is the reality of you know living even in this um, you know first world country of New Zealand. You know there are many people, and that is what they can afford. Uh, the thought of buying vegetables and you know steak or chicken is just out of their budget. You know so this this objection that people can't afford to eat well, and I know that is a reality for a lot of people. But for people that can just afford it, this concept of fasting, so instead of eating three meals a day with snacks, what if you were to eat two meals a day and spend your budget on two meals rather than six? I think that is conceptually a way that you can reduce the, the cost, plus you are reducing your eating window and expanding the fasting window where all the magic of apoptosis and cell cleaning and cell recycling occurs. So this idea of, of fasting, one, to make it more affordable, um, but two, to get you into deeper ketosis more quickly. Okay, and that's that's just sort of management, really, isn't it? That's just your personal management. That's what you've yeah. got to do sometimes. So, yeah. yeah. It's like uh, managing the farm or whatever that's called. Um, is it safe overall? Okay. Yeah, so a lot of doctors freak out when they hear the term ketosis because we got brought up with ketoacidosis, which is a, an emergency for type 1 diabetics. It's often how a type 1 diabetic is um, diagnosed. They come into the emergency department very sick, often vomiting, uh, and they are in diabetic ketoacidosis. Now, the difference between nutritional ketosis and diabetic ketoacidosis is that it occurs in type 1 diabetics. So diabetic ketoacidosis occurs in type 1 diabetics. The vast majority of people that we are talking about have type 2 diabetes or insulin resistance, and it is safe for them. So just the, the little, um, you know, it's important that, a ketogenic diet is not for type 1 diabetics. Um, it's not for, probably not for people who have had a significant eating disorder or, you know, an altered relationship. With well, what would an eating disorder exactly be? So I'm talking about anorexia nervosa or bulimia. You know, that they probably need to stay away from these um, highly restricted uh, diets and especially fasting. But for the vast majority of people, um, the combination of intermittent fasting and a ketogenic diet uh, is highly appropriate for reversing their metabolic dysfunction and their type 2 diabetes. Is this a stupid question for me? Uh, and I should probably know, and I've probably been told before, what is the difference between type 1 and type 2? Yeah, um, exactly. not, a, not a stupid question at all. So Type 1 diabetes is far less common. 
It's often diagnosed in childhood or early adulthood, and it's the body is not producing enough insulin. The pancreas has failed. So the beta cells that produce insulin within the pancreas has failed. There is a failure to produce enough insulin, and without insulin, you die. That's type 1 diabetes. Type 2 diabetes is too much insulin. There is an overproduction of insulin, and the body responds to that by becoming resistant to the insulin. So insulin levels in the blood are very high, and the body is resistant to insulin. That's, yeah, that's the difference. And most people, we're talking about type 2 diabetes. Okay. Um, that's, um, that makes that very clear. So you held up to me before we started this chat, the nutrition ladder. Yes, I did. And I, I mean, this is radio audio and you can't see the picture, but I think you can probably explain it and maybe we can post it up somewhere too so people can refer to it. So what's the nutrition ladder going to help people with? The point about this is if you have a very significant, serious neurological or metabolic or immune system problem, you want to be into ketogenic diet and prolonged fasting. So, you know, for perhaps cancer or Parkinson's disease. But if you're just wanting to lose a couple of kg, you're probably just into a low-carb diet, you know, and, and we vary the severity of the carbohydrate restriction and the amount of fasting depending on how sick that person is. You know, very sick, longer fasts and deeper ketosis, not so sick, um, just mild ketosis, intermittent fasting, and just wanting to lose a few kg, probably a low-carb diet without having to go as far as ketosis. Okay, and um, if you see the picture, it's really easy to get it. So as I say, we'll try and post it up somewhere, but if you want to search it out anywhere, that, that uh, would be online somewhere, a version of that, I would imagine. Um, no promises, but I, maybe. Yeah, so. Well, the, I'm not wanting to be self-promoting, but it is on our webpage, which is uh, Reversal NZ, uh, and it's called The Nutrition Ladder, and it is in our resource section. I think that's the only place you could find it at the moment. It's fine. You, you, can, you can tell us that. That's no problem whatsoever. In fact, that's good. I'm glad there's somewhere people can go. ReversalNZ.co.nz. And was what, what was the page it was on again? The resource page? Uh, it's in resources, yeah. yeah. Yeah, all right. Anything more to say about the keto diet? Um, yeah, it's, it's changed my world as a doctor. You know, so I've gone from thinking of type 2 diabetes as this chronic, irreversible condition that inevitably leads to dialysis and limb amputation and blindness now, since learning about the ketogenic diet, I see it as a, I was going to say easily, as a, as a potentially reversible uh, condition for the majority of people. So, you know, I view type 2 diabetes now as an entirely different animal to I did, you know, before I learned about the ketogenic diet, which is the treatment for type 2 diabetes, you know. And I think that's really important, particularly for health professionals to understand, you know, this is the treatment for type 2 diabetes, just like it was the treatment for epilepsy in the 1920s. 
know, type 2 diabetes is treated with a ketogenic diet and it is reversible with a ketogenic diet. Are people waking up to that, do you think? Well, it's interesting because I'm now starting to get the pushback. You know, um, I think I'm now seeing pushback from the people that view diabetes as a lack of appropriate medication. You know, there, there are people that think type 2 diabetes is a lack of the right medicine and it's just a matter of adding enough medicines in and it will be cured. You know, that seems to be the pushback to my argument that a low carbohydrate or ketogenic diet is the cure for type 2 diabetes. The pushback is, no, it's too hard. Um, people can't afford it. And all they need is enough medicines to turn it around. But I can guarantee that you could add medicine after medicine after medicine. And if you continue with a poor diet, you will not reverse your diabetes. You know, it is reversed by dramatically changing your diet, eating a whole food diet that's low in carbohydrates and diabetes for a majority of people, type 2 diabetes for a majority of people is reversible and will go into remission. Yeah, just listening to you to say that, you know, the, the difference in thinking is is the, the, the medicine thing, actually, when you think about it, doesn't make much sense because that assumes that you've got some little gland in your body that makes the medicine normally. Well, that's not the case, is it? No. So you're coming in at a level way above, you know, you, you, you're ambulance at the bottom of the cliff. It, it actually doesn't really make any sense. No, and, and you don't have to apply a lot of logic to realise that it doesn't make sense. And in general, medications treat the symptom but not the cause. You know, and what we're looking at here is managing the cause, which is a highly processed or ultra-processed diet, high in sugar, that is the cause. We can then deal with the cause by changing the diet and the symptoms should resolve rather than just treating the symptoms. And mm. I know from a public health point of view, it's more complicated than that because you go back to the determinants of that cause. You know, why are people eating like that in the first place? And then we get into the influences of the food industry and lobbying and um, cost and education and, and all of those upstream determinants. But if you go, what's the immediate cause? It's ultra-processed food. Get rid of ultra-processed food. Don't bring it into your house. Don't have it in your pantry. No empty pantry, full fridge. Um, buy things that have recently been growing in the garden, um, flying, swimming, walking. You know, that is the definition of a whole food. It still looks like food. You know, your grandmother would recognise it as food. You know, it doesn't generally come in a packet. Generally, it doesn't have a food label on it. It generally, if it does, it's got less than five ingredients. It hasn't got a whole lot of numbers. You know, it hasn't got this yeah. preservative, that colouring. You know, it hasn't got a whole lot of words you can't pronounce. You know, if you can't read the word, one, because it's so tiny. On yeah, well, you see, that's done on purpose, isn't it? Yeah. That's done on purpose. So people just give up. You need a magnifying glass with you too. Yeah. So you get your magnifying glass and then you can't pronounce it or it's a number. You know, that's a warning sign. A lot of people don't call them food labels. They call them warning labels. And I tell you what, there is no food label on a fish and there is no food label on a cauliflower. Don't you know, give them so any ideas. 
<laughs> so, you know, stay away from the warning labels, you know, drink pure water, eat above ground vegetables, eat high quality proteins and traditional fats, and you won't end up in these problems in the first place. If you do need to reverse it, go there. And if it's a significant issue, go to a ketogenic diet for a period of time and reverse it. If people are prepared to change our world for the climate emergency crisis, so-called, then there's an equivalence there. We should be prepared to do the same thing for the health crisis, the health emergency. But that's not happening. So there's a, there's a mismatch there. That's maybe for another day. But, uh, again, great information, Glenn. Thank you again so much. Um, How does it feel to be on Monday now? <laughs> I'm bright and fresh after yeah. a relaxing uh, weekend. Yeah, okay. Well, we'll catch up again next Monday. Any um, thoughts on, on what's coming up? Have you been giving oh, yeah. a much thought? Oh. Yeah, well, I was thinking let's talk about alcohol, shall oh. we? Oh, yes. Okay. So, oh, that's going to be an interesting one. Is alcohol a poison? Is alcohol in small amounts good for you? You know, thinking of the red wine and the French paradox, or is all alcohol in any form uh, poisonous? We'll leave folk to ponder that until next Monday when I'm looking forward to talking about that or hearing what you have to say about that. Not no, that I'm no a, one's gonna. No I'm one's not a big drinker. To... <laughs> I'm not a big drink. Never been a big drinker, but I can tell by how sharp your mind is. But <laughs> no one's going to tune in because I think already they're predicting what I might be about to say. Yeah, so there'll be no audience. There will be zero listeners on Monday morning. <laughs> oh no, there'll be the curiosity factor. What's he going to say? What's he going to say? How hard is he going to go? Anyway, you'll have to wait another week to find out. Dr. Glenn Davies, ReversalNZ.co.nz, our health hacks. Thanks again. Okay, thanks, Paul. RCR with Paul Brennan, Reality Check Radio.